Dotnet Rocks, episode 992, with guest Anthony Eden. Recorded Thursday, May 22nd, 2014. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. We're here. I Well, I'm here. Richard's in Belgium. Isn't that where you are, Richard? I am in Belgium and very happy here. Having a great time. Awesome. Having, are you drinking beer? I know you don't usually drink beer, but you're in Belgium. Yeah, no, I drink beer when I'm in Belgium. It's, this, is, this is beer country and it's crazy not to. So I've been right. dipping into a few interesting Trappists and then uh, you end up in bars where they make their own and it's, it's amazing. Big, thick, chewy, you know, serious beers <laughs> and big alcohol numbers too, six, seven, eight percent. So yeah. Stuff that um, the Americans would call malt liquor. Right. It'll poke your eye out. So uh, what about chocolate? Yep. Have you been indulging in any Belgian chocolate while you're there? Not a chocolate guy. But no. they make a local stew here with the beer that's pretty excellent. Oh, really? What kind of meat do they use in it? It's, yeah, whatever they got. I don't think yeah. there's any cat, but pretty sure it's a <laughs> lamb and some beef, you know. Deer, maybe. And beer. Okay. And beer. Deer and oh, beer. And Belgian endive. You know the, the, the sort of bitter root? Yeah. Leaf? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they took, I had the endive wrapped in ham and then soaked in enough cheese sauce to cause a coronary. That's awesome. Fantastic. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that's the travel section of today's .NET Rocks. Now let's get to <laughs> better know a framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, today, Richard, uh, I have an, uh, something for the F-sharp and stat mathy programmers among us. Uh, we know about the language R. Yeah. R is Always a, meant to do a show on R, you know? We have yet to do a show on R, but it's a, basically a free software environments for statistical computing and graphics. And it's yep. been ported to a bunch of different uh, platforms. But there really isn't any official .NET implementation. However, now at CodePlex, if you go to r.net, that's r-d-o-t-n-e-t dot codeplex.com, there is r.net enables the .NET framework to interoperate with the R statistical language in the same process. It requires .NET Framework 4 and the native R DLLs installed with the R environment. Oh, interesting. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so this is brand new beta, you know, literally fresh off the presses. Yep. And it, and it, it's not a replacement for R. It's not R in .NET. It's being able to communicate with R from .NET. Exactly. So it's an interop package, basically. Nice. Yeah. And this just uh, just dropped this morning at three o'clock this morning, as of this writing. So. Hmm. Yeah, it seems so show worthy. We're gonna have to dig into that. Yep. Sounds good. Love it. Nice find. Yeah, I thought so. So there you go. Yeah. Check it out. r.net.codeplex.com. And uh, who's talking to us today, Richard? Hey, I grabbed a comment off of show 982, and that's the one we did with Mr. Crockford while we were at Dev Intersection. And I really enjoyed that show. Uh, mm-hmm. Douglas Crockford is one of those guys. He's got a very grandfatherly nature about him, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. And uh, and, and we and it generated a ton of comments. It's hard to resist him. 
Very hard. Uh, and it's Luckman Shoj said, uh, Every time I listen to Douglas Crawford, I'm inspired that as programmers, we must learn more about the history of why we do the things we do. Mm. Concerning the finished comments about rethinking how we deal with numbers, I realize that as a developer, not too long in the tooth, that many developers are not comfortable with change. Mm. As a functional programming evangelist, I've seen many examples of this. Well, look, functional programming is a whole other thing. That's not change. That's actual brain surgery. <laughs> uh, I would also love to see one number type in some future language, but I doubt this will go down well without education of why we have what we have. Mm. I can only hope that my children's children don't have to worry about the oddities converting ints to doubles or decimals. Thanks for another brilliant show. It's, it goes well, to show you that uh, the computers were just not meant to do floating point. I mean, they're binary, you know? And so we've got all sorts, even in our own beloved .NET framework, we've got all sorts of different, different implementations of, of decimal, uh, you know, for different applications. Of well, then there's numbers. no reason for it because you don't need it. We, all you want is a precise number with enough resolution. And and the only, you know, as Doug said back on the show, it was only because we were trying to save bytes and performance. Right. And that's all done now. All I want is a giant decimal type with as many orders of uh, precision as I want. Yeah, exactly. As big a number as I want. And everything else is a waste. Right. And they all behave differently. They all round differently. Yeah. Yep. We need to get rid of all of that. Yep. I agree. No more. Make it stop. It'd be nice. Luckman, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those apps are built by Diatom Enterprises. We'd love to build you an app. Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And before we go any further, let me tell you that Pluralsight is home to the largest technology and creative online training library on the planet. They have thousands of developer, IT, and creative training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They're still releasing 40-plus new courses every month and offer a 10-day free trial, 200 minutes. Pluralsight offers a full curriculum on software practices, including Agile, Scrum, TFD, and a full library of design patterns. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And that brings us to Anthony Eden. Anthony is the founder of DN Simple and the perpetrator of numerous open source projects. Anthony has also contributed to a wide variety of open source projects over the past 17 years as a software developer using multiple languages, including Java, Python, Ruby, Clojure, Go, and Erlang. Anthony currently lives near Carcassonne, France. Welcome, Anthony. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So we got to start with the story. I mean, we told the story on .NET Rocks about how we uh, we found DN Simple, and um, well, I, I got to start with the story. You mind if I tell it, Anthony? You can tell whatever story you like. It's your show. All right. Well, anyway, so we were on the road trip, and I think Richard, it might have been the second one. Was it the second one? The That's third. Twenty twelve. Twenty twelve. Yeah, third one. Third one. Okay. And we got an email from a uh, internet hosting and domain name service provider and i won't say who it is but it rhymes with slow patty okay <laughs> won't say who it is though but they uh expressed some interest in advertising with our show and i looked at richard and i said hey these guys want to advertise 
And Richard and said, I think I said something along the lines of, but they suck. <laughs> we, we don't like them. Last time I tried to use their site, I got so confused. I, I had to like stick ice picks in my ears. And I, you know, I said, that's, we hate these guys, but we like DN Simple, you know? So maybe I'll just write a email to DN Simple and see if those guys want to advertise. And we told, I just picked, you know, sales at dnsimple.com. And I guess it got to you, Anthony. And you said, I told you the story. And you said, oh, that sounds intriguing. Give me the pitch. And you ended up doing some advertising on Hansel Minutes, I believe it was. I did. And I love Scott. And I mean, that was actually the opportunity crossover there was perfect. Um, so I was, I was really happy to to send you guys some money and, and uh, help out Scott's show at the same time. It was, it was great. And um, the reason that we liked you, and I can't remember how I found Dan Simple in the beginning, but um, it just it, simple is the word. I mean, I had no friction doing any of these things that I need to do all the time, which is, you know, um, adding IP addresses to domains and adding records and moving things around and, you know, uh, setting up. Uh, I, I actually entered the MX records for Gmail using my phone and your web, your mobile web interface. So basically I was just browsing to your website with my phone and you guys had this perfectly adaptable responsive UI and I was able to go back and forth between Gmail docs and you guys and cut and paste and copy the MX records right in while I was in the security line at an airport. Oh, that's that's good. I'm glad that that... I, I'm actually a little surprised because I always think we can do better. Um, so it's good to hear that even as we strive to do better and better, that we still deliver a good experience. It uh, makes me happy. And that's just critical. And, you know, um, sorry, slow patty, but your experience is not anything like that. So Yeah, but they get all the monies. <laughs> I, I don't know why. <laughs> uh, I don't know why. That's advertising, I suppose. I guess. That's marketing for you. Yeah. Well, anyway. Something like that. I don't know. We just we we want you guys to succeed some more because it sure makes us happy to use it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that, and it makes me happy that um, we're delivering value to you guys. That's that's awesome. How did it start? Uh, so back in 2010, I was coming off of working at a startup that had sort of I tried over and over again, and it was I was working for somebody else, and we had tried to we launched it once, and it failed, launched again, and we were coming off another failure of it, and I and I'd been working for other people and failing multiple times. And I said, you know, it's really, this is silly. I, I know DNS. I know the domain registration area. Why am I not building my own business? Right. And right around that time, uh, I was actually using slow patty as well. And, um, <laughs> and I just, I went through, I went through the registration process and, um, and almost bought a used car. And I was like, yeah, there's that's something right. wrong here. That you know, Richard yeah. mentioned that is that you, you get tricked into buying stuff that you don't know that you're buying. Yeah, and I said this is absurd. All people really want to do is they want to set up their DNS or register a domain. They just want to do that, and that's right. it. There's yeah. So I I've, that was the start of it. And um, at the time, I was I had just started freelancing, and I said, okay, this is probably a pretty good time to do this because I'll have downtime between freelance gigs. I know it's something I want to do. I spoke to my brother and said, "Hey, do you want to do you want to do this with me?" And he said, uh, "Absolutely, let's do it." And so that was the start of it. And we we the first code commit went in April of 2010, and then the site officially launched, I think, in July of 2010. Wow. Yeah, because I guess we were using it in 2011, 
And uh, we're just like, oh, this is so great. I'm moving all my stuff out of, I had stuff at Network Solutions too. And you guys are, um, you were still early adopters then. Hmm. Head oh, of the curve. Yeah, no, we were in pretty early and hauled a lot of stuff across because, you know, you ruin people. Once you've had an experience that isn't evil, when it actually just does what it's supposed to do and it works, you're like, I can't go back. I, I know better now. I can't live like that ever again. Right. I've had that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. It's just amazing. And and thank you. <laughs> thank you for simplifying <laughs> my life. This is so well, great. Well, hopefully we could even do it better. I mean, honestly, the, the thing that I've learned over the last four years of doing this is that I just, I feel like it's it's so important for us to continue striving to to make things even simpler, even better, you know, and it's tough because there's a lot of moving parts that we hide behind the scenes. And my goal yeah. is to get that to the point where it's so seamless that it never fails and everybody's just always amazed by it. That's what I want. I want that feeling of amazement all the time. Well, I don't know. I mean, your competitors have set the bar pretty low. So all you really had to do was walk up and step <laughs> ah. over it. You know, it's true. They really it's have. You're not actively deceiving your customers. So it turns out to be a real milestone. Imagine that. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think it's really interesting looking at your UI. Like, uh, you had to invent this. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the, the sort of process that went into just, it's very minimalist in a lot of ways, mm. the sort of fewest number of clicks to organize all this information. Yeah. So that's actually, to me, that's what's, that was actually a really interesting evolution that came from my work before. So prior to working on Dan Simple, I had worked at a domain registrar. This was back in the very early days when the .com uh, TLD was deregulated. And so I built a user interface there and there we were sort of all following there were a few big players like Network Solutions and Register.com, and, and the goal was just to be like them, right? Because the right. real goal wasn't to make the process better. It was just to launch because it was so early, and we were on the first seven registrars, and we were like, okay, let's just get this thing launched. And then later, I worked for both a registry and registrar, and during those times, I started to think, you know, what are all these extra sort of requirements that nobody really cares about? So, for mm -hmm. example, when you talk about a domain registrar, we'll have you set up contacts, like multiple contacts, one for your registrant, one for the tech contact, admin. one for the admin. And, and I, was, I was looking at that and I was saying, you know what? It's bureaucracy. No one ever, almost no one ever really wants those to be different. In fact, no one really cares that much as long as they can get email to make sure their domain doesn't expire. Right. That's what they care about. Right. And so just right. that simplification right there and then the removal of say, specifying different name servers during the registration process, those two removals made a huge difference in the registration flow. So look, watch difference. a customer's eyes when you tell them when they want to make a change to their website or want to move the domain or whatever. Oh, you know what? You need to track down that guy who registered it for you 10 years ago because uh, yeah. he's technically the, the, the guy who has to do that. And they look at you like, it's my domain. What? Yep. What are you talking about? Yeah. And there are, there, there are definitely, there are definitely still, there were hurdles to make sure that we were doing that and still providing um, enough functionality so that the majority of our customers could do what they want. Um, but the, the inner, I, I said, how can we get this down to the fewest steps possible? And I, I don't know if you've, you probably noticed this or maybe you, I don't know, most, we get a few comments about this, but we don't actually have a search functionality to find domains that you want. No, I know that. Yeah. When you, and, and when you go and say register a domain, 
you just register it. And if it's taken, you say, okay, well, you need to move that now. Yep. That's it. And, and we, we get some people that say, wow, it'd be really great if you did that. And then I usually point them to, to something like Domainer or there's another one for a domain search. Or just who is that net? These tools are out here and they work really well. Just go look there. And once you find it, just come to the site and register it. We, we don't want to focus on that search facility right now. And that, I think that's a lot of the initial design of the interface was do the simplest thing possible because we can always add to it later. And mm. then when we had to add to it, we, like, we argued back and forth about the addition of the checkbox for automatic renewal. Wow. <laughs> that's Love how, it. like, I, I was like, it's I an extra want- step. Why do I have this step? <laughs> I think I don't want this checkbox here. Okay, well, we got to have, you know, people are asking for that checkbox, but I don't want it there. And then it says, okay, what if we put the checkbox and then we check it by default? We're like, oh, win. Okay. So every time, every interface change to those, those two registration pages is a lot of back and forth. Like, okay, how, what's the simplest way that we can do this? And I, I think that's what keeps that flow from becoming overwhelming and, and too many steps and, and just a pain to use. And we have more to talk about and before we get off this. And by the way, I just want to say that, you know, Anthony didn't pay to be on the show. This is not an infomercial. We truly just absolutely can't say how awesome DN Simple is because we use it and we love it. And that's, that's why we're talking about it. And, uh, I, I just want to tell you one more story. So I had a band in the studio and I was recording them and they didn't have a name. And they were deciding on a name, like, as they were mixing down their music for their album, like that kind of thing. And they f- they finally landed on a name, and I said, let me see if that domain is available. And sure enough, it was. And so I said, they said, I said, would you like me to register for you? They're like, yeah. So I went to DN Simple, and I just registered it, and five seconds later, boom, it was done, right? No problem. So then, I don't know, a couple... They, I. You know, I, like literally in 10 minutes, I had set up with Visual Studio and in Azure a website, a placeholder website for them with a picture, and they were very happy about it. Then they said, uh, you know, a month later, uh, we need to transfer this domain because we want, you know, control over blah, blah, blah. So can you transfer it to our SlowPaddy account? And I mm-hmm. said, sure. Well, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And I have been using technology and DNS and all this stuff for years. And the, either th- they weren't competent enough to press the right button to send me the right email, or I wasn't competent enough to do it. We got involved with support. They weren't helpful enough. And long story short, over uh, we spent hours on this before giving up. And uh, finally, one of their other friends, the band's other friends, said, Hey, uh, if you can, I'm just going to go set up a DN simple account. Can you just transfer it to me? Sure. No problem. And there's one button that says, take this domain and transfer it to this DN simple account. Boom. Done. Done. One (laughs) button click and done. I can't tell you how awesome that is. (laughs) That's just so cool. Yeah. Well, the, the funny thing is the transfer out process is, um, God, it's a nightmare. And we've tried to, we've, I've looked at that thing over and over again and tried to figure out how to do it better, but there's just so many 
organizations that have to have their hands in it, right? I mean, you've got the other registrar, right. you've got the registry in the middle, you've got to have emails going back and forth, and then the emails have to hit off the who is, and it's just, it's a nightmare. Yep. And that, unfortunately, is something that has to be fixed through policy, and you know how things go when they have to be fixed through policy. Yeah. But I presume this is not actually the registrar's fault. Is this ICANN who's overwrought this thing? Yes, that's well, yes. And through through many years of negotiations with network solutions and other massive registrars who don't really want you moving domains out of their system. No, it's not right. to their benefit. So this is an intentional obfuscation. They're trying I to make it hard that. so you won't move. <laughs> It sounds. It you, appears you that way. You said it, Richard. I didn't say it. It appears that way. They have no incentive to help you move. Yes. Yeah. Well, they have strong incentive not to. Right. The same way that 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 cell phone carriers build crazy plans so that you with crazy contracts so that you don't understand them and just get surprised by the charges and can't get away from. Them. And when you cancel, call it's to a, cancel, they say, "And why did you offer? Why are you unplugging from the collective? Are you not happy with our service?" Is there something else we can do to help? No, just cancel, please. Thank you. If you guys want to talk tech, though, if you want to make sure that, that people know that I'm here because of my tech credentials, we can go that way, too. So what are your tech credentials? Well, I mean, as you've, as you've heard, the, as my bio stated, I've been programming for quite some time across a bunch of different languages. I actually started with Perl. Did uh, several years of Perl, then switched to Java back in the early, early days when it went to 1.0 because I wanted to build desktop applications and I wasn't smart enough to learn how to use the the Mac OS, this the giant library of books that you used to have to buy to program OS 9 and you had to write C and that just wasn't me because mm. um, I don't have a traditional background in, in programming. I, I studied music composition at the University of Miami. Hmm. Um, That's surprised. And just sort of through my family who are all either software developers or engineers of some sort sort of fell into software development as being a good career path. And um, so did a lot of years of Java, wrote a lot of open source stuff, and then started playing around with things like Python and Ruby and, and fell in love with Ruby and have done many years of Ruby and recently just started expanding quickly and trying different things, including you know, Erlang and Go and wrote quite a bit of JavaScript as well. So it's it's more of just been over the years I've I've kept exploring different languages to try to see how it all fits together. And um, without a traditional background, you know, for me, those explorations are a lot about finding the community, finding what others have written about it, uh, as, a as opposed to actually understanding initially how the computer science works, really understanding how it is, uh, how it, things function in a pragmatic fashion. You know, how can I actually use it to build things today? Uh, you're describing my career path, really. I mean, not not with the technology, but that's my approach as well. It's always about what is the application of this technology? How do I use it? What's the best approach to it? And then learn the tech that you need to learn in order to make that happen. Yeah, it's always it's always great to have something to a project that you want to work on that is the the thing that drives you to learn that right. new language or that new technology or that new framework. I totally that's agree. Really and pick good, something good that's just out of your reach. Pick something yes. that you can't just, you know, you can't just sit down and whip off something that's challenge. And yeah, and that will fuel it. So what's your current language these days, Anthony? Uh, I go back and forth between Ruby, Erlang and Go um, pretty much on a regular basis. Uh, so over at Dan Simple, our name servers are written in Erlang. 
Uh, I swore I would never write an authoritative name server again after doing it twice and then got dragged <laughs> into doing it yet again in Erlang this time. And I'm really happy with the results. It's actually an open source project that's on GitHub um, called EarlDNS. Earl hmm. And um, so I spend time writing Erlang code. I spend quite a bit of time writing Ruby just because the whole DN, the DN Simple app, the, so the, the front end and everything is all Rails. And then we've got a lot of Ruby libraries that we depend on. And then we use Go for uh, various services inside of DNC, both inside and outside, especially when we're sort of resource conscious. And newer services that are small and lightweight, when we want it, when we have a service that we want to keep you know, nice and, and lean and low memory usage, low CPU usage, fast, uh, we, I usually reach for Go at this point. And I got to say, like, it makes total sense to me that an authoritative DNS service would be written in Erlang. That sounds like the perfect language for it. Sure. Absolutely it does. It, lean, it, fast, multi-threaded, scales infinitely, only message-centric. Like, what more could you ask for? Yeah, there's some great features in Erlang that the, I think the one that really, really took me over the, the edge and made me go, man, I got to use this, was uh, Erlang's bit syntax, which is essentially a way of destructuring a binary stream of data into... Um, into internal variables in memory. That's the pattern matching features. Yes, it's the pattern matching, but inside, so you could take like a, you could say, here's my data. And if it matches this bit string pattern, you can say like, you know, the first four bytes are going to be something and then the next eight are going to be this and then there's going to be some text and then it, it's just, it's so elegant. It's perfect for DNS, mm. which has a very well-defined packet structure. Um, so, and I use, I go out there and I give talks about Erlang from time to time. And when I do that, I almost always have a slide that I show the bit syntax for a DNS packet. And then I show, and I say, what is this? Can you guys tell what this is? Can the, can the people out here that are, that are watching this tell what it is? And then I show them the, the ASCII art from the RFC, and it's almost a perfect match. <laughs> 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 so it was That's like, this awesome. thing, these were just, they're like peanut butter and jelly, man. They just meant to go together. Yeah. We, right. I, I first heard about that uh, on the road trip, um, uh, that feature of Erlang. And, and like you, that I was blown away. Yeah. So what about, you know, I just think your collection of languages is Java, Erlang, Go. Like, I think they have nothing to do with each other at all. I mean, Erlang's clearly in a land all by itself, but I don't think Go and, and Java are related at all. So I think, uh, let's see here. So I went after Java, I went and did a lot of Ruby. And both of those are fairly object oriented. But Ruby actually is was is sort of this mashup between several languages, including Perl and Smalltalk. And there's actually even some functional techniques that are in inside of Ruby with lambdas and procs and things like that. And and I think that was part of what got me interested in wanting to learn how to use a functional language because I saw people using these and I use them effectively, but I didn't fully understand the real benefit of it because I still had this object-oriented stateful language, you know, where you could essentially have these objects which have mutatable state inside of them. And I was like, I want to I want right. to know at least one language which is more sort of more strict functional programming. And so I started learning Erlang the first time a couple years back, a few years back, and I failed miserably. I literally had to put it aside and give it up because it, it hurt my wow. brain too much. Hmm. Then I came back a second time and I tried again and I, I made it a little further, but then I had to give up again. And so finally, 
about a year and a half, two years ago, when I started working on the authoritative name server, I said, okay, now I have a project that I can use. And I found a bit of code out there that was a starting point. And just about this time, uh, there was the learn you some Erlang for the greater good was finishing up. <laughs> and and this is a free <laughs> book out on the web. And I was like, this, this sort of trifecta of an idea that I wanted to do, a little bit of code to start with, and a good resource that was freely available on the web uh, encouraged me to actually stick with it. And that was when I finally got it. And I sort of understood Erlang and I went through and I built this and I, and I slowly worked my knowledge up, wrote lots of code, threw away lots of code. And, uh, and now I'm, I'm a huge fan of it um, for a lot of things. But like Java, which has a virtual machine that essentially uses a lot of memory, Erlang is very yeah. similar. Erlang sort of says, I'm going to give you this environment in which you can work and I'm going to manage all the memory inside of it. I'm going to, you know, pre-allocate a bunch of things that you don't, don't worry about anything. I'm, I'm your warm blanket that you can just sit here in. Right. And so when it's, it got it's to, almost like it comes with zone OS. It's so it self-contained. Right. I think Erlang is basically like the VM is an OS for writing applications. It's a programmable OS. Nice. Yes, that's mm. what it is. And and so, I mean, the, some people believe that so much that they're they're essentially uh, bootstrapping Erlang right on top of Zen virtual machines now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so so clearly they think that it can be a full blown OS. Anyhow, the I got to the point though where I wanted to do a certain thing, which in in this particular case it was I have a lot of data. It's going to be published in probably some sort of string syntax. In this case, I was mostly thinking JSON. And it would have to be parsed and, and written, and there was a lot of things that I would have to do with it. And it had to be fast, and it was going to be it was going to be a significant amount of data. And the first implementation I tried to do in Erlang, um, it was just too slow for this particular use case. Um, and so at that time, Go had just gone 1.0, and I think they were working on the 1.1 release. And um, I said, okay, th this, this is interesting. I, you know, I, I hear smart people talking about it. I don't know what it's about. I know that I don't like C, but some people are saying this is kind of like a better C, which is debatable, but that, that was sort of the message I was getting. And they said, most importantly, that it was really good using memory and it, was the, it would perform very well in the, for CPU usage. And I said, okay, let me try to write this same service that I was doing that was an internal service. Um, I was going to write it in Go. And I had written one other Go program before that was a really, really lightweight uh, web service that was a replacement for what we had in Ruby um, because the Ruby stuff was taking up too much memory. And so I had already had my first experience with this. And I said, okay, that was really good for this very simple web service. I wonder if I can use it for something more significant. And I spent some time writing it. And lo and behold, it it lived up to my expectations and provided a very, very high-performance lightweight uh, memory usage service that did exactly what I want. Hang on right there, Anthony, because uh, it's time for something. Richard, you know what it's time for. Must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to keep it simple, slow down the paddy wagon, and press the go button. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, all right, well. all right. I'll make a note of that. Don't, don't, don't okay. ever say that again. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's time to give a D-Experience subscription away from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. 
But before I tell you who the winner is, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. And check out that little Pac-Man running in a cape. I swear to God, it's Mark Miller. Nice. Yeah. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Dave Hunter from the UK. Congratulations, Dave. Golf clap clap for you. Golf clap for Dave. I got the clappers. Nice. Dave just won a D-Experience subscription. That's a, a great big pile of awesome from Developer Express. And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button in the right-hand corner, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we give away sponsor stuff. Every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And Anthony, you've been thinking about this for a little bit now. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology, what would you buy? Well, you guys, you know that I'm, I mean, I mentioned earlier that I'm a musician. Yeah. And, uh, so if I had five grand to spend, I'd probably go out and buy uh, a really nice Strat, uh, Fender Strat, along with a really nice amp and head. And then I'd probably use the extra money, the extra $5 left over mm-hmm. after I do that to get some picks. And then I just run out. That's what <laughs> I would So do. let's see. Maybe a, a Fender Strat Plus with lace sensor pickups and maybe a, a Vox AC30 head. And Sounds a 412-inch uh, speaker cabinet. Oh, yeah. Now we're talking. Uh, <laughs> guitar geeks, look out. I have that, basically. That's one of my... Oh, yeah, I'm jealous. I'm sorry. I'm so jealous. Sorry. I could sell it to you for five grand, though. No, I actually wouldn't. I love my Vox AC30 head. That's awesome. And I um, also have a a Mesa Boogie dual rectifier head, which is a little wonky these days. It's got a little more control, but it's a little wonky. I'm really, really loving the AC30. Yeah, it's not. I've man, I tell you what. Uh, ever since having kids, I haven't had a guitar amplifier around the house. So. Oh, for obvious reasons. One of these days, <laughs> got to find a place where you can just go and crank it up. Oh, I know. I'd be so nice. Yeah. I'd love to. I'd love to turn my basement into a, 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 a little home studio. One of these days. Yep, that's doable. Hey, you know you can get a. Um, and we use these sound booths from SoundSuckers.com. They're about five grand each, and the ones that we have are four by six, four feet by six feet. But they they do pretty good at keeping the noise contained. So, um, you know, if you've got five thousand dollars burning a hole in your pocket, and you want a an isolation booth in your basement, so that you can either do your own podcasts like we do, or uh, you know, or have a place to crank your guitar really loud, you know that that might help. Sounds like a good idea to me. Mm. But then you wouldn't have any money left over for a guitar and amp. No, so. that's true. I, but I'd have a sound booth. I'd be able to walk inside and go, it's so quiet. Or you can do some primal screen <laughs> therapy, one or the other. Nice. <laughs> oh, man. All, right, all right. So let's Audio talk about geeks. Go. 
Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm really interested. You've got a lot of focus on keeping the system really, really lightweight for DN simple. What's the constraint there? So, well, let me just let's look at a specific thing. So, in the case of our of our um, DNS servers, our authoritative DNS servers, we actually load the entire zones into memory so that they right. can operate. And, and we do this across a, a, an Anycast network of about 40 different virtual nodes set up across five different points of presence around the world. And so the, the thing was is we wanted to be able to have these things be able to warm up pretty quickly so that if we wanted to stop them and start them, that warming up that entire zone in memory um, would happen fairly fast and thus we wouldn't have to wait for a long startup time. But more importantly, that we'd be able to do that from outside of our own networks. So we didn't want a protocol that was dependent on, on transporting stuff over our, you know, over opening up holes and firewalls and stuff like that. So we wanted to right. say, okay, so the, the original constraints were, uh, let's see if we can find a way to ship the zone data over HTTPS. Let's find a way if we can do that as well to have bi-directional communication so that if zone changes came in, those could go out over that same socket, in which case we said, okay, well, web, so web sockets will work for this. And right. let's do all of this and load however many zones we need to load. In our case at the time, I think it was, oh man, what were we loading? 80,000 zones into memory right. with, you know, millions of records total. Holy. This is your whole customer base, right? This is yeah, what you exactly. provide. This is the service you sell. Exactly. And wow. we want to do this as fast as possible. And we want to change right. to go out fast. And all this. so so that was a constraint. So uh, we wanted a a significantly parallel uh, HTTP server that also supported WebSockets on one end and then the Erlang name servers on the other. And so the original question was, well, what can we do that in? Well, we, we knew that we could do it in Ruby, but it would likely be pretty slow and making it parallel effectively, so making it truly multi-threaded was going to be challenging. Um, yeah, that's not what Ruby's that we for. Could, yeah, so we knew we could do that, but it, and, and I was like, okay, this that's one path. The second one was, well, can we do it with Erlang? And the problem with Erlang was we wanted to produce, we need to pull data out of a database and construct a JSON data structure with it and then send that over the wire. Because at the time, that's how we figured we were going to distribute it. And we still do right. that today, but we're looking into new options. So, so that was the second one. And, and I wrote the first implementation, and it just, like, actually the process of getting it out of the database, prepping it for JSON, and then, and then publishing it across the wire, was, it worked, but it was relatively slow. You know, so, like, startup hmm. times were taking, we were doing, first of all, we were, it was prepared to do parallel, but we also had to implement the parallelization on the Erlang side. So, there was a lot of things going on. I was like, okay, I'm going to use Go for this. So, one, I knew that I had to have support for high concurrency because the Erlang right. side was going to launch a bunch of parallel uh, processes, which it did very well to consume the data. And I wanted that data to be ready, almost ready to go. So, I had to do very little parsing on the Erlang side. Um, so the data structures would have been prepared on the zone server side. And I, I've, quite frankly, just putting everything together with Go was a fairly quick operation because Go was, it's got its own built-in HTTP server, which is actually pretty darn wow. fast because it uses the built-in Go concurrency. It uses channels for communication. It uses Go processes for the, you know, for actually launching these different lightweight processes inside. And so it, it, it's a highly concurrent uh, web server. 
I found a WebSocket library that was pretty much ready to go with a little bit of tweaking. Mm -hmm. Its database library was quite good. Uh, and then, uh, and so it has its internal sort of abstractions for a database library. And then we were using a, a, a driver that was created by one of the, the Heroku folks, um, Blake Miserani, I guess who originally, originally a Heroku. I'm not sure if he's still with them. And, you know, there were, it was just like everything fit together and it created this service that could, that ran really well, quite frankly. And that in conjunction with the other, the, the other process, the other service that I had written before, which was essentially just a simple web service where we had gone from using, I think the Ruby processes were using like 78 megs of memory for a basic web service mm -hmm. down to, I don't, it, it, it's like, it was like, it was something stupid small. I mean, it was like orders of magnitude smaller than that. And then CPU usage during the, the Ruby one was running it around anywhere from 70 to 80% CPU usage. And then when I went to the Go one, the CPU usage basically just disappeared. Wow. I mean, it, it, does, it doesn't even show up anymore. And I said, you know what, this is something, This the, these things that I'm learning here, that I'm seeing this when I operate it in production are showing me that this thing has legs. It's It's a potentially very good language in cases where you where performance matters and um, you don't want to use an entire dedicated system just for this little service. And can we go into a little bit of why you think that the difference in performance is so dramatic? Sure, sure. So well, let's look first at memory usage. So one of the things that's, that's interesting about Go is that it, it will not compile uh, if you try to import something that's not used. So it'll actually fail to compile unless you explicitly say, I want to import this, um, this library, but I don't want to use, I don't want to import its namespace right now, but you almost never do that. There's rare mm. occasions to do that. So, so that's the first thing. Whereas a lot of, a lot of languages will import their standard libraries into memory right from the beginning. Whether they're but, using them or not. Yes, exactly. So they'll, they'll, and especially when you add in frameworks like rails, which are essentially load, load up the world get it all in the right. memory, and then we're good to go. And Go doesn't do that. It's, it's very, very strict about, how, about what it lets you load into memory. And those things are all, they're just, they're already compiled down and they're linked together, right? So, so I think that's the first thing that does it. The, the, I think the second thing that does it is that um, it's not an object-oriented language, so it doesn't have a lot of the same overhead that you get when you construct objects. You know, normally when you construct objects, you've got uh, a, the object itself takes up n number of bytes just to define that this is an object and if you create lots right. of those then just the existence of that object is taking up lots of bytes in itself and in go you tend to work either with really low level data so either a strings or ints or whatever some low level data or you work with structs and structs are then just combinations of low level data so you don't have the overhead of objects that you would have in an object oriented language I'm sure there are experts out there who can explain it even better. And, and I bet if you did a search uh, on Google, you could probably find it, it, more details. And it's, it's worth looking into. But I'm, I'm guessing that's, those are part of why it's quite good at memory usage. And then on the CPU side, um, so one, I think that because it has built-in concurrency patterns with right. Go routines, and they're very lightweight, so it's not using OS threads or OS uh, processes. It, it it uses them 
to an extent, but that's only so that it can internally distribute its lightweight processes across multiple OS threads, the same way Erlang can do that. Um, and then okay. the, the communication between those things uh, is done through channels, and channels are themselves very lightweight data structures, which basically just have an in and an out. Hmm. And, um, and it allows you to communicate through with these processes in, with multiple processes inside uh, without worrying about having to do synchronization and things like that. So my guess is, is that it just, it's designed to use multiple CPUs quite well. When the language came out, it's recent. So everyone knows now that you're going to have multiple CPUs yeah, to it, use. You don't have a choice. That's how computers right. come. And, and the majority of languages that we use, whether it be .NET or Java or, or say C Sharp, Java, um, you know, Ruby, Python, they were written in a time when we didn't have multiple CPUs, really. When the majority of the, the systems out there was were a single CPU, a pizza box with a single CPU in it if it was a server, or a single yeah. CPU desktop or laptop machine. And so I think it's the language was just created and optimized from the beginning to run in the environments that we have now. It also sounds like it's very HTTP-centric. Like, what you were doing with it sounds like exactly what it was built to do. That I, I think, so, yes, I, I think it's sweet, one of its sweet spots is lightweight HTTP services. So right. a, a very specialized HTTP service that you that requires multiple processes because it wants to be able to handle lots of current current connections. The language and the standard built-in HTTP library seem to be very well adapted for that. And it makes a whole heck of a lot of sense given that it came out of Google. And they sure. run a lot of HTTP services. Yeah, that's what it's, that's what it's meant to do. And it should yeah. be noted, they're usually pretty darn fast. Yes, they are. Yes, yeah. they are. Um, the other thing that they do, I think, will be a sweet spot for it. Uh, we'll see if this proves out. But I think lightweight, and again, I'll keep saying that because I think that's a key point to it. If you want to run an agent, for example, out on some other system, so this is a non, maybe not a public-facing agent, but an agent that's gathering some data from that system, um, because Go is good with how, because it is effective with memory usage and it is low in CPU usage, you can run these agents on systems without using up lots of resources. And thus you can still use the, you have these systems that have some other primary purpose, such as a web server or mm. um, you know, an XMPP server or whatever it might be. There's this service out there that's running, uh, you know, an analytics service, whatever. And then behind the scenes, you can have these little agents that are written in Go that, that, are, that just sort of hang out back there and can provide data back to something else that needs it. So I think that may be another sweet spot. So do you think that people who are using Node to write these little microservices and things because of their fast and small, you know, footprint and all of that stuff might want to take a look at Go? I think so. I've I never really went down. I never got on the Node train very much. Um, and I guess in a way now I'm kind of glad I didn't because I, I think Go is a better language than JavaScript for the server side, quite frankly. Hmm. Well, it's good enough for Google. I mean, you got to keep coming yeah. back to that, really. I mean, talk about dog yeah. fooding. Yeah, exactly. Now, the, and I, I know that there's they still have so much stuff in C and C plus plus over Google. I'm I'm certain of it. And I think Go was their response to trying to manage, um, you know, these these 
massive arrays of systems that were all written in C and C++ that were trying to interoperate. And they, I think they just said, you know what, we need something better than this. And, mm. and to me, Go is that answer for them. And it's worked out well for them. I know they've started switching some stuff over. It's worked for lots of other startups that are, are willing to write about it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's worked for us. It's really interesting. I just like the idea of you know you've got the right language It's when it snaps together right. The same way you were looking at it in, in Ruby and saying, well, this doesn't feel right. It's too heavy. It's too clunky. And, the you know, rather than just refactor it or recode it, switch to a different environment that was a little more meant for this. And you see the difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I still, I mean, to be fair, I still find for day-to-day -day usage, if I want to code up something really quick, um, I will often reach to Ruby first. Because mm, sure. I know that it, it's just, it's the language itself is so conducive to building something very, very quickly. It's, it'll just, it's, it's, right. it's just really good at that. It's right. It was, it, it was, seems like it was really meant for experimentation. Yes. But then when you get further down the path and you're starting, you're focused on performance or footprint or anything like that, it, it comes with some baggage. And now you've got to think, you know, is this worth refactoring? Is it worth thinking a different way about it? Mm. Absolutely. And, I I've, I found that for some reason, and whether it's just where I am in the in the case of Dan Simple and the case of myself technology-wise and, and my interest, that I find myself writing really small separate things, sort of the Unix philosophy of light, you know, small pieces loosely joined. The same patterns right. are showing up in Go applications. It's it's just easier to to start with a little simple Go application and then extract out a library here, extract and then keep everything really small and tight as far as both the code structure and the the resulting application that gets out there and executes. Mm. That I don't know if that's part if that's sort of led there by the language or not, but it's definitely happening in my own code, and that helps. I mean, if you have uh, if you have a, a lot of lightweight pieces and you can put them together in different ways that are interesting, um, you can accomplish quite a few amazing things just by plugging these pieces together. Uh, as an example, we have um, this internal service from our authoritative name servers where we actually stream all of the inbound questions out to whoever wants to listen to it internally. So every DNS, and this is across, so like all of DNS questions coming into all 40 services, like authoritative name servers out there um, can right. potentially be streamed and aggregated. And I, I wrote a little Go program to aggregate those. And it's it's a very simple program. The first version basically just aggregates them and displays them on the screen. And I wrote that in a couple of hours and it just, it worked beautifully. It was, it's just like, once I had it working and I turned it on, all of a sudden just this like flood of data was coming across the wire to my local machine here and it was brilliant. And so I think that, and then I took that same piece and then built another different little Go application that used a chunk of that library to do some basic analytics by pushing into Redis, for example, locally on my machine. Hmm. And I was able to have nice. a leaderboard of questions. And so those little pieces join together. I don't know, again, I don't know if it's the language itself, if it's Go that's encouraging this, or if it just happens to be this is where I'm at in my development career, but it these it seems to encourage these lots of little services that are out there operating together. And it feels like it's tapping into the real muscle of a machine, you know, cutting through all of those abstraction layers that slow us down for these kinds of tasks. Absolutely. Absolutely. How does the language itself um, feel 
maybe to a C-sharp developer or a Java developer? Um, so I found that if you are comfortable in any sort, if you've, if you've, you've, procedural, you've used procedural languages that have basic types, so uh, you know, if they have a type system like Java or C-sharp, that it's fairly comfortable. The first thing that's the first oddity that's going to throw you off is if you really love your objects. Mm. So if you if you say building systems with classes that construct objects, that's the way I that's the only way I can think of things. Then then Go is going to throw you for a loop initially because it doesn't have those in the traditional sense. It still has structures though, right? It does have structures, and you can attach functions to structures, and they become methods, um, which. Yeah. Feels sort, sort of, of like, like object-oriented object. programming, yeah, but it's yeah. not technically. Interesting. Okay, because you can't have instances of those things. Is that yes, why? you can. Yeah, yeah, you can. Oh, you can. So you can have these structs. You can. Yeah, you can have. You can, you basically have a struct. Like you can say, okay, I've got this struct, and I'm going to construct a new instance of this struct. And then if you've defined the these methods, which is essentially just a function that it's where before you describe the before you define the name of the function, you mm. say it's going to a, a it accepts a type with a pointer. It's like a pointer type. Mm -hmm. And it says this, then anytime an object like, or anytime a struct like that comes through, you're essentially going to get methods that can work on that struct. And okay. they're going to be attached to it. Um, All right. And so, yeah, it, it, it's weird at first. <laughs> and it's also weird if you're not used to coming, uh, if you're not used to a language where top, you know, top level functions can exist. So where something just calls a function and that function can pass data to other functions without right. having to attach it to an object. You know, if, if you're used to that, then that's going to be a little weird. But if you can get past those things, the language itself is fairly straightforward. Um, I, I, as an example, that first service that I converted from Ruby to Go, I essentially did that in a few hours. And, and part of it was because I, um, I, had, I didn't commit the initial commit to Git. And then I ran Go format in the wrong way, and it deleted everything I did. And I was mm. like, "Whoa!" Because this was like the first time I'd ever use it, and I didn't know how to use Go format. And I said, "This is not what I wanted." So part of that first half of the four hours was me writing and then screwing myself up by deleting what I had just written. And unlike true functional programming languages like F Sharp, you don't have immutable types, right? I mean, you can change structures and change variables and all those things. So right? it, it, yes, but you can do reassignment for okay. sure. Um, and, and so you can, you can mutate data inside structs hmm. if you have methods attached to them. If you, if you pass in an argument that is a basic, like a low level type, obviously you can't change that argument. It never goes back out. You, you have mm. your return arguments that are your return arguments that come back out. Mm -hmm. And, those will be new objects or new um, new values unless uh, unless you have unless you pass them by a pointer, for example. So they're yeah okay. So unless you pass a pointer, you're not you. Everything's by val by value. Yeah, passed yeah. by so value. So it's 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 not it's similar to that, and and really where that stuff starts to to matter is when you're doing the. Um, you know, when you're right when you're working with concurrency, right? When you have multiple processes that can potentially touch some data structure. Mm -hmm. And if you're if, in the world of Erlang, um, it's really, really difficult to mutate anything. I mean, right. you can't do reassignment. You can't mutate. Nothing gets mutated because it was built from the ground up to expect these messages to be passed and to have no real connection back to the thing that was passed in. 
Uh, Go is a little bit like it, it can do that, but it's also you still have to kind of work at that. It, and it has some low level semaphore, like some low level uh, mechanisms for doing locks and things like that if you need to do that type of thing. Mm. Um, so it's possible, whereas in Erlang, it's totally, it's really, really hard to have a shared data structure. And it's interesting that, you know, the Erlang and F sharp people will say how awesome it is, you know, for performance and for the ability to do these kinds of highly parallel things to have immutable types. And here we have mutable types and ridiculous performance. It yeah, just seems counterintuitive. It does. It does at first. And then I had, I, I questioned a lot of it, but I, I think that the, um, the channels mechanism that go has like it, it does a pretty good job of allowing interprocess communication internally inside of your Go application hmm. without having without allowing you to cross over those boundaries. It's always possible to do in Go, but you just won't you won't see very many examples. Most of the time, when you're using channels, you're passing across um, a very uh, usually just a very basic type, like an integer or a string mm-hmm. or something like that. You're not passing something that's mutable, anyways. You're not passing a pointer. Yeah. Um, over you can, but and and by default, if you if you were to mutate it, you'd have to be careful about locking it. So right. they do still give you enough rope to hang yourself. Um, I see. But but here's the key. So you know it's true that non mutable data is really really good for building highly concurrent systems that because you just have less risk of messing yourself up. But there's always a but, right? If you have data going in and then you need that same piece of data on the other side and it can't be shared, it has to be copied. Mm-hmm. And copying can be can slow you down. It uses up memory. So th- this is a factor that has to be considered. Sure. Sure. Um, so there's trade-offs. All of this is trade. Everything that we do, every piece of software that we write, whether we realize it or not, we're trading off. We're making various trade-offs. I mean, that's just the way it is. And I think that one of the things that the authors of Go did is they created a pragmatic language and they got the right trade-offs from the beginning for that particular need that the language serves, right. which are which are lightweight services. Exactly. And I think they've done a very good job at that. And which is why I think I'm I'm fairly confident that Go is going to be a very, very popular language in the in the next few years and beyond. Wow, fantastic. So I'm looking at the fact of Go, and I see that there's a whole bunch of stuff left out that uh, C-sharp programmers, anyway, might might uh, be upset about. I don't know, or just, you know, wonder why they're not there. Like generics, exceptions, assertions, um, uh, you know, uh, type inheritance, that kind of thing. And yep. it seems to me that those things might be uh, one of the reasons why the the language is so performant because they don't have all these features. Yeah, I think that those those things definitely were left out on purpose. It was likely partially due to performance and partially because they the goal was to keep the language simple. Yeah. Simple seems to be your middle name. It is. I love simple things. I really do. Awesome. Um I so it works out it's a, it's a good language for me for that particular thing. Um but all those things that you think you need in the language um, you can live without a lot of them. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> All right, Anthony, you're going to be at NDC. I am going to be at NDC. I'm giving two talks. I'm giving one talk on Go, 
where I'll introduce the language and and show some examples of how we use it inside Dan Simple and and talk about its benefits and some of its drawbacks. Um, and then I'm also giving a talk about my uh, changeover from being a software developer to running a business and how I think that software developers are posed to be sort of leaders in business if they choose to be to do that. Wow, great. Boys, I should say. I'm going to definitely check out those talks while I'm there. Awesome. Yeah, we'll see you in Oslo. Yeah, I'm so glad to be. Uh, you guys, I'm, let's hang out because I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting you face to face. Absolutely. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a